Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Friday, July 5th. I hope everyone enjoyed the holiday. I'm Chris Hurdy. Today, we're talking about mindfulness and how it's been whitewashed in the U.S., apparently to make it more accessible. These days, you don't have to go too far to hear the term mindfulness. I have a mindfulness app on my phone. It's echoed in yoga classes, mental health clinics, classrooms, magazines at Whole Foods, apps like the one I have... (laughs) You name it. And rarely is the term mindfulness mentioned in conjunction with the actual Buddhist traditions or texts it came from. It's a big dilemma. We want to absorb the teachings that can make us stronger, healthier, more fit for an increasingly crazy world. But in app form, they've kind of been plucked out of their cultures and whitewashed beyond the point of recognition. So today we're going to talk about commodified spirituality and its effects, particularly on people of color. We've got Vice's Ankita Rao and Sophie Kazis on the story. Hi, Akita. Hey, Sophie. It's good to be back from our short break. Felt like ages since I've seen you. I know. It feels like ages, but I'm glad to be back on the podcast. And today we are talking about an article that you wrote about the whitewashing of mindfulness meditation and mindfulness practice, which is a practice that originally comes from Buddhist discourse. To begin with, can you tell us What does this cultural appropriation or whitewashing look like? Sure. So if you look at any of the most popular mindfulness practices in the U.S. right now, usually they're received through apps like Headspace and Calm or through mental health practitioners or through spiritual guides like yoga teachers. And very few of these channels mention the roots of where this practice came from. This is actually a practice that's rooted in Buddhism. It's from a particular sutta, which is like a discourse or a text. But that's pretty much never mentioned. People sort of just launch into how to practice it. And that, you know, similar to yoga, disconnects it from where it came from. Before we jump into what this means and sort of what is lost by the decontextualizing of mindfulness meditation, I want to ask you, what made you want to write about this in the first place? I actually thought about this idea when I was using a meditation app, which I often use, and I was looking for a meditation that was not made by sort of a lay practitioner in the West. And I couldn't find any. I mean, these guided meditations were usually by sort of lay practitioners or, you know, yoga teachers with a few years of experience. And it was hard to sift through and figure out which was an authentic one. So that's where the idea started. In your process of trying to find that, did you find any alternative apps or spaces that helped you out? Sure. I mean, I mentioned this in the piece, but I don't feel like this is a lost cause. There are a lot of people who authentically practice these traditions and these meditations. And 
There's certain apps like Insight Timer that allow anybody to upload their meditations. And this is, you know, it can be kind of a crowded space and hard to find stuff. But at the same time, it, it lowers the barriers for people across the world to actually upload them. So if there is somebody sitting in Dharamsala, they can actually put something on there. And not only that, but I think the important piece here is the community around this. So a lot of apps that strip out that sort of tradition or context attract, you know, basically sort of the usual affluent uh, white Western population. And when the apps are free and they're crowdsourced and people can build communities, you'll see things on Insight Timers like black women meditating together, like groups of them. And that sort of helps with the authenticity and the access. And did the authenticity of that experience enhance your mindfulness practice? Did it make it better for you than using the other apps? I think it just took away some of that cognitive dissonance. I mean, I I practiced yoga for many years. My mom is a yoga instructor um, who was taught by a guru in India, like the whole, you know, brown people thing. And it's really hard for me sometimes to like walk into a yoga studio when I have my mom's voice in the back of my head being like, make sure this is a good teacher, like make sure this is, a you know, the actual practice. And I think the same thing goes for meditation where, you know, I've kind of grown up with a certain type of expectation and authenticity and to just sort of throw that away for anything is, it just feels weird. And I, I mean, I wish I could say that more like <laughs> in a more deep way, but it just, it feels off. And so I think that coming across, you know, ways to sort of sift through and find something that felt better, um, yeah, was just kind of personally validating. Absolutely. I think that your article talks about two main issues at hand, which is Silicon Valley being predominantly male and white and all apps coming through that lens, including mindfulness apps. And then there's sort of the world of mindfulness in the West and yoga and health food and sort of this the commercialization of this kind of spirituality that's happening both in the online and app sphere and then in real life in in studios and in supermarkets. And I want to talk about specifically with decontextualizing the religious origins or the spiritual origins of mindfulness meditation, whether it's in an app or in a yoga studio, what are we losing here? So I think that's a great question. And I think what it comes down to is if you strip out that sort of context, are you still practicing for the same reason and with the same intention? And I think a lot of times in in our culture, we think of meditation as a means to like make us more focused, make us better at work, make us sleep better, all these sort of tangible goals that are very important to our productivity or to the individual. Whereas these practices came out of something much bigger, which was a bigger connection to spirituality, to universal consciousness, to a community. Very little emphasis was placed on the individual, whereas the way we've sort of molded it for our culture here is to place all the emphasis on the individual. And so I think that's what gets lost. And I think that's what even in mental health practices where they use mindfulness as therapy, it can become so clinical and almost I mean, and I'm not saying it shouldn't be used. I'm not saying it's not helpful. But if it's framed simply as like, here's four steps to relax, it's not the same thing as what it was created to be. And it was created in 
such a different context in the sense that you bring those practices to the West and the West is capitalistic and consumerist and individualistic because of those systems. And so there is sort of that cognitive dissonance there with a practice that takes the individual out and emphasizes community in a society that is so based on the individual and so based on capitalism and making money. And I wanted to bring up that point because as I read your article, I was thinking it's not just that the apps are created by white men and therefore sort of targeted at white men, but also it's those same people who are profiting off of these apps, which are, I assume, very marketable and profitable. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's we see this all the time, right? Like I was reading this piece the other day about this woman who's a, a white American woman who's made like billions of dollars off of a chai company. And it, it's always amazing because I'm like, why didn't the people who make the chai profit? You know, like why, why was it? Why did it have to be marketed this certain way to gain that sort of thing? And I think that happens with a lot of different things from across the world, but especially when it comes to sort of spiritual traditions, it just seems like particularly pernicious and unsettling for people to just make money off of this like a business. And yeah, I think you're right. That's a huge part of it. And I also don't want to say that like Eastern culture is the sort of docile, like Shangri-La sort of situation where nobody's worried about money and nobody's a capitalist because that's not true, right? You know, Buddhists have also oppressed other people. So have Hindus. I don't think that's like, you know, I don't think it's sort of like a, oh, but everyone's peaceful over there and everyone's not over here. But I do think that there is a fundamentally different way of working in these societies. And when things are brought over without understanding that, there's just a lot that gets lost and sometimes exploited. On paper, a mindfulness app seems helpful. And in addition to probably wanting to make money off of it, the creators of these apps probably think they're doing something good for the world, good for people who you know, need to de-stress or you know, deal with anxiety in some way. You talked to some of them. What is the thinking that went into these apps? Yeah, so I spoke with Kevin Rose, who created a meditation app called Oak, and Christopher Plowman, who created Insight Timer. And honestly, there's no reason to sort of demonize the people who made these apps. You know, they're not trying to necessarily, like, ruin something. Um, I think it's more that we don't have, we haven't created the spaces for spirituality, really. You know, like, like Kevin Rose, for example, he himself practices Vipassana meditation. He's not scared to like use religious words or do, you know, different Zen practices or go to temples. You know, he himself practices pretty authentic forms of meditation. But he, when it came to making his app, he was worried that talking about some of those things right off the bat would scare people away because we are such a secular society and there are so many agnostic, atheistic people that don't want to hear about religion. They just want to sit down with an app and chill out. And so I think there is that struggle to balance that sort of how much tradition and how much sort of authentic language can I use and also still involve people who are not necessarily religious or spiritually inclined. So what would some suggestions be for the creators of these apps to integrate more context and acknowledge the religious origins and maybe some of the language 
into the mindfulness practice that they're selling without sort of further appropriating cultures that are not their own? Yeah, I think that's a great and somewhat sticky question. But I think from what I've heard, you know, one mental health practitioner I spoke to, Kendra Sermitis, she says that involve someone who comes from that tradition in formulating your practice in the first place. So like have a Buddhist monk or just some sort of person who's learned from the source of the teachings help create your curriculum or your app or your meditation. Make sure that people are involved who do have a firm grasp on the full spiritual practice. So I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's about inserting like a Sanskrit or a Pali word here and there to just like give it a good feel. I think that can be worse, you know, in a lot of ways. But instead, it's sort of seeking the people who do kind of own, maybe that's not the right word, but are vessels for the practice in the first place and having them be involved from the get go so that you don't produce something that doesn't have that authenticity in the first place. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ankita. Thanks so much. To read Ankita's full article, go to tonic.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. And tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.